For about 21 years, Amy and I seldom preached together. We divided the time um, one Sunday to the next. But a couple years ago, we started with one series, both speaking on a Sunday morning. We enjoyed that and have enjoyed several opportunities to speak together on a Sunday morning. It's given us a chance to both speak, to come at a text from a different angle, for you to hear different perspectives. Um, you've been kind about that. And so while this will not be our um, our only practice. We do want to continue this fall. We preach together this summer, and this fall we want to continue with a series that we are calling Jesus Taught What Jesus Learned. Now, we don't expect you to follow series all the time like we do, but for this fall, this series, we're going to use the Old Testament le uh, text from the lectionary as well as the gospel lection. One of us will preach from the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture. One of us will preach from the Christian Testament. Um, and the idea here is to think about what it was that Jesus learned as a child when he was being raised in yeshiva or going to school or be sitting and listening to the rabbis, what did Jesus learn and how did that impact his life? There should be a connection each Sunday between the Hebrew text and the Christian text, from what Jesus learned to what Jesus taught to how Jesus lived. Today, we think that connection revolves around the word risk. You've heard that word several times, the word brave, the word risk. And so listen now to, the, to our Old Testament text as we read um, a, a story from uh, the Hebrew uh, scriptures, and then Amy will follow me with the gospel reading. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses, for the, for the Pharaoh, but the more they were oppressed the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless, imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. Then the, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them who was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw in the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. You have heard the ancient story. 
I enjoy reading bumper stickers, even though there's a lot of bigotry on bumpers these days, but other messages make me laugh a little. Have you seen the one that says, the closer you get, the slower I drive? And the one of my favorites of all time says, Jesus is coming, look busy. And there's that guy who drives around town with a shoe obfuscation plastered on the tailgate of his truck. What in the world is he thinking? For this morning, there is the one that says, well-behaved women seldom make history. These words come from Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian at Harvard University who coined the phrase in 1976. Her words have now a life of their own on t-shirts and coffee mugs and car bumpers of defiant women the world over. There are a lot of women in the Bible, though too many of them are unnamed. There is the anonymous widow who put her two mites in the temple treasury, the woman caught in adultery, the woman healed by touching the hem of Jesus' garment, the widow of Nain, the woman at the well. According to a United Methodist researcher named Aaron Cain, there are more than 600 unnamed women in the Bible. Among the women who are named, we are still telling the story of two not very well-behaved women called Shifra and Puah. They were not very well-behaved because they disrespected the command of the king, because they practiced civil disobedience, not conformity. They braved punishment at the hands of an omnipotent ruler, and if their treachery was not bad enough, add their daring deceit to the story. They lied to the very face of the man who held their lives in his all-controlling hands. What bravery, what courage. The story of the Jewish people is a history of oppression followed by liberation, which they believed always came from the hand of Yahweh, the God of the covenant. The seminal story is the narrative of Moses, and if you need to be reminded, here's another three-minute timeline. Let me take you back. The father of the Jewish faith is Abraham. God called old Abram, and though his dried-up wife Sarai was barren, according to the scriptures, God promised to make of them a great nation. Abram believed. So God changed their names, and Abraham and Sarah became the proud hundred-year-old parents of a bouncing baby boy named Isaac. And after Isaac was spared becoming his father's sacrificial offering on Mount Moriah, he became the father of Jacob and Esau, a pair of rival twins. Years later, after a night of wrestling with a stranger, a divine messenger in disguise, Jacob's name was also changed to Israel, one who contends with God and prevails. And Israel went on to have 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was Joseph, who had his father's craftiness and an ego to match. His brothers understandably hated him, so they faked his murder and sold him into slavery. But because the story of faith is filled with irony, Joseph ends up in Egypt, second in command of the whole country. As the story progresses, a famine in Canaan led elderly Jacob to send his remaining sons in search of food. 
While in Egypt, they are surprisingly reunited with the brother they had deceived many years before. But rather than take his vengeance on them with a grace of biblical proportion, Joseph welcomes his brothers. And according to the biblical narrative, that is how the Israelites end up in Egypt. And, if, and it is there that we pick up the story today when a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Because the new Pharaoh did not know Joseph as his brothers, that is the Israelites, grew in number, a paranoid animosity arose in the Pharaoh. The Israelites are becoming mighty, so the Pharaoh devises the first of many planned holocaust in Jewish history. To this day, this story is seared in the memories and the theology of our Jewish friends. But God has other plans. So enter the daring and disobedient Shifra and Puah. Their defiance of the king frames a clash of kingdoms that is inseparable from the story of faith. You can be sure that Jesus knew Shifra and Puah. Because Jesus was a student of his Bible. Especially important for Jewish faithfulness is the Torah, the five books. Jesus knew the Torah where the Exodus story is essential reading. Undeniable in this narrative is the clash of kingdoms. The kingdoms, the powers, the governments of the world in opposition to God's kingdom. The kingdom as we have called it recently. You can be sure Jesus knew Shifra and Puah, not just because it was required reading, but because the conflict which framed their story had not changed. First century Jews faced the oppression of a crushing Roman occupation, no longer the Egyptian Pharaoh, but the story as Jesus lived it was very much the same. The powers always say, conform to the rules of this world or else. Like Shifra and Puah, Jesus refused to conform. And like so many true prophets before and after, Jesus faced the or else of the ruling powers. And the irony of all ironies is that the followers of Jesus came to reframe that cross that brutal tool of Roman execution as the story of faith. It is the ironic way that leads to life. Jesus, they said, taught us that the only way to real life is through confronting the powers and dying. Dying to the values of the prevailing system, dying to one another, dying to ourselves for the sake of a different kind of kingdom. Altogether. We live in a frightening time, frightening for many reasons. Among the existential threats we face today, I believe, is the extinction of our faith, because there are many who seek to merge Christian faith with the power of government, to enshrine Christian values with the rule of law. And I guess this is an understandable temptation from the surface. You know, wouldn't it be great for school children to begin each day with prayer? Wouldn't it be great to have courts guided by the Ten Commandments? Wouldn't it be wonderful if football coaches led prayers at midfield after every game? 
but the Christian nationalism that some conservatives think will be our salvation has been tried countless times in countless nations, and in every instance, faith loses to the power of a state that always bows only to the rules of power. We will not make the nation faithful by establishing someone's narrow version of Christianity in the halls of power. It has been tried. It has always failed. Until the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven, there will always be a clash of kingdoms. It is the story of the Bible from start to finish. The movement of social justice, the disobedience of faithful souls, the brave example of Shifra and Puah, their defiant challenge which Jesus lived to the death. That is the center of the gospel. Jesus knew Shifra and Puah. You can see it in his life. The world needs to see it in ours. May it be so. So the text from Matthew's Gospel. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. You've heard the ancient story. It stands out as one of the most memorable and meaningful days in the Holy Land for me. The day I stood in Caesarea Philippi, in the very spot where this scene takes place, and a question that I had heard Jesus ask so many times before made so much more sense in context. It was a light bulb kind of moment for me. It was clearly the place where people went to worship many different gods. You could see the alcoves carved out on the hillside as you stood there before this cave and hill. There were all of these places that were cut out of the hillside where gods would have been and people would have gone there to worship the many different gods. Among all of these other gods, why in the world would Jesus have taken the disciples there, of all places, to ask this important question? I think it was kind of a show-and-tell moment, not a test moment. It was a field trip. Let me show you what we are up against. And now that you see all, oh, there we go. 
I've been wondering where we were. Okay, good. Yay. Y'all, I'm going to go back and start all over. I'm just kidding. For those of you at home, if you didn't hear all that, sorry. Okay. Okay, it was a field trip of sorts. Let me show you what we're up against. And now that you see all the choices before you, all the gods, all the intriguing paths in front of you, all the possibilities, Jesus asked first the penultimate question, wanting to know how his disciples would answer the question, who do others think I am? Followed then by the ultimate question, and now who do you say that I am? But if you can place yourself just for a moment in front of that hillside wall of pagan worship and just imagine Jesus asking you that question in that setting. But you don't have to go to the Holy Land to hear the question asked of you. Before us all are walls of enticing power and alcoves of success and popularity. Right here in front of us are shrines of social media and name brands and in crowds. Right before us, there are gods of security and gods of comfort. And perhaps for, the, for many, those to be worshipped are the influencers that make their money getting in our heads and in our lives and influencing us about everything from the latest must-try recipes to fashion and to religion, more, more often bad religion. How we answer this question, who do you say Jesus is, is very important. Really, how you live your life is the answer to the question. So many people think that this question has a pretty simple and straightforward answer. It's a question that should be asked of us every day. And our answer is not just a spoken one. That's the easy part. But we give the answer in the way we live our lives. So I've stood right where the disciples stood, literally and figuratively. Literally, it's a place that captures your attention and a scene that makes the text come alive in new ways. But figuratively, it's a panorama we face every day, isn't it? Every day we are called upon to answer the question, who do you say that I am? While all before us are so many choices of other things and other people and other ideas to follow. Because we know how he talked, because we know what he said, because we know how he acted, because we know what he condemned, because we know what he lifted up, because we know the scripture that he turned to to guide him in his way. You know, this really isn't rocket science. Because we know, how will we answer? And who are you willing to be in light of your answer? You are Jesus, son of the living God, son of the loving God, son of the gracious God, son of the forgiving God, 
son of the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth chances, God. Son of the God who loves us unconditionally. Son of the God that cares about the other, especially the poor and downtrodden and oppressed and lonely other. And when we know so much about him and then dare to claim him as our own and are yet unwilling to answer his question with our very lives, then perhaps we should be careful about how we claim him. So this question posed to us today gives us an opportunity to ask, who are you willing to be? That's the answer to the question. So maybe we need to check ourselves. Do we act in ways that exhibit an unwillingness to hear each other out and ask for forgiveness or offer forgiveness? Do we pass by people that are hurting and turn our gaze aside? Do we say and share things on social media that we would never in a million years say to someone's face? Oh man, this week I've had so many opportunities to share mean-spirited things that make me laugh. But they're not funny because they're so horrible about another human being. So I resist the urge in a Jesus moment. Maybe show it to Russ. Maybe that won't count quite as much. Send it just to my sister instead of the whole family group to not start a thing. Do y'all look at social media and how horrible it is? Oh. Do we hoard keeping the best and most for ourselves? Are you answering the question of who Jesus is to you by the way that you live your life? I had this image of standing there in front of that hillside that was filled with alcoves of so many gods and I wondered what it would be like to pose a question to Jesus. So I went back in my mind's eye and I stood there in that beautiful setting, the big cave, all the places where the gods would have been worshipped. And I pictured Jesus standing there with me and I pictured asking him, Jesus, who do you say that I am? I know what his answer would be. Come on. It would be, you're my beloved sister in whom I am well pleased. But if I pressed him a little harder, kind of like he liked to press the disciples, if I said, no, Jesus, don't give me the Sunday school answer. Give me the real answer. Would he say, I recognize you as a follower of my way because of the way you talk? because of the way you walk, because of the way you share, because of the way you act, because of the way you live your life. And that, my friends, if you let yourself go there in your mind's eye of the picture I have painted for you, it should be a bit of a gut punch. Who does Jesus say that I am? 
Peter got the answer right, even though we all know he failed so many understand. Uh, so many times to understand what it was like to live the Jesus way. But in all of his failures, Jesus always has a way of coming back and saying, you're my beloved brother, try again. And it's on Peter that he laid the foundation to build his church and to dare anyone or any evil to prevail against him. And as failed and as miserable as the church can be, look at us. We're still sitting here talking about Shifra and Puah and Peter and Caesarea Philippi and asking ourselves, who would Jesus say that I am? It's a complicated, difficult, risky vulnerable endeavor when we decide to answer Jesus' question, who do people say that I am, and then answer it with our lives. Complicated, difficult, risky, vulnerable, and I want to add another, aggravating. And Jesus knew it. It's why he cautioned them, don't tell anybody about this. It's counter to what we understand about the way of Jesus. We should want to tell everyone about this. But he understood the risk. It could get you killed, and he had some more work to do. And he still does in us, through us, alongside us. So let's risk it all, friends. Let's be like Shifra, Puah, brave risk takers. Let's be like Peter, bold in our answer. Uh, while we're at it, we could just go ahead and be like Jesus. May it be so. Amen.